computer. There we go. Welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Today I have with me Terry Tucker. Terry Tucker has a lot of important things to talk to us about today. And I want to pass it over to Terry with this one simple question. Who is Terry Tucker? Hey, JR. Thanks for having me on. Uh, that, that's a great question. I, I kind of look at my resume and think, you know, one of these days I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. But I'll, uh, I'll give you the quick Reader's Digest version of me. I am the oldest of three boys. You cannot tell this from my voice uh, or from looking at me, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And I played college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. When I graduated, I moved home to find a job. I'm really going to kind of date myself now. This was long before the <laughs> internet was available. Okay. You know, and I was, all, I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And I look back now and realize kind of what a knucklehead I was to think I knew anything about business just because I had a degree. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, in their marketing department. But unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my dad and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Uh, in my professional career, I, as I said, I was in marketing with Wendy's. I was a hospital administrator. I was a customer service manager for an academic publishing company. I was a police officer. And while I was a police officer, I was an undercover narcotics investigator. And I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. I was also a school security consultant, a high school girls basketball coach, a motivational speaker. Last year, I became an author. And then for the last nine years or so, <clears throat> excuse me, I've considered myself a cancer warrior. And then finally, my wife and I have been married for 28 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is a lieutenant in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. Whoa. Now, I want to touch back on something because me and you in our pre-call, we talked about Ohio and you didn't tell me you were around the du Dublin area. I was actually my wife and I, uh, I worked for Riverside uh, Methodist Hospital and my wife and I met while I was working for the hospital. She was uh, actually working for a bank. So yeah, Columbus, Dublin area, that's kind of, uh, it's kind of where our, our wife, our life of 28 years started. Okay. And that's amazing because I frequent, um, <clears throat> Um, my wife is deceased now, but we frequent the Hilliard du the Dublin area. And it's something about it because I've gone to the Wendy's that, that uh, has everything that's like, I'm not going to say memorialized, but it's like a Hall of Fame type deal. The one in Dublin. And, I, and after you said that, I, it, it just rang a bell because we went there. Like anytime we would come from West Virginia to Columbus, we would make a trip just out there just to go there to eat. And the corporate headquarters is just right, right over the hill, correct? That, that's amazing there. Yeah, that was always the place you wanted to go to see what kind of new products Wendy's was testing, because, you know, that was the first store that they would put it in to see operationally if that was something that was feasible. Because, you know, the thing that you don't realize is that whenever you put a new product into the store, you're going to cannibalize another product. So when I was there, we tested hot dogs. And the thing about it is, is if you buy a hot dog, you're not going to buy a hamburger. So, you know, you, there, there is that trade-off. So that store was always the one to see if, you know, operationally we could do it. Okay, that's amazing. Kind of puts a little connection there. Now, we're going to dig deep just from, from the gate. Um, you have numerous titles to your name, and, and that has to be, that has to come at a price and uh, at a cost. So 
going through life and well let's go back to your childhood real quick because we want to get wrapped up in you and get immersed in you um what was the first adversity you had as a child I think the real the real first adversity I had when I was when I was uh right after my freshman year in high school and I tore cartilage in my in my knee and this was before arthroscopic surgery was available. So for about a year, I had uh, two major surgeries. My second one, I was put in a cast from my hip to my ankle. They don't, they don't do this stuff anymore. I mean, there's more emphasis on rehab and getting out and getting up and, and, and getting back engaged in life. But I spent that whole summer, you know, there was no cable television. There was no internet. There was no cell phones. There was no anything. And, you know, for a kid who's used to being active, that was the first, first opportunity I had to realize that I needed to control my mind or my mind was going to control me. So I would say my first adversity was that first surgery between uh, right after my freshman year in high school. And then from that point on, you got a new perspective on life. What What would you say that perspective was? Did it make you more insightful or did it make you, like you said, you had mind control, but do you think like it, it gave you a better sense of, man, there's more that I can do with myself while I'm inside or what it actually transpired after that? Yeah. I, I mean, what, after those first two surgeries and, and I finally got back to, to playing, I remember my mind was kind of, it was putting all these negative thoughts into my brain, you know, things like, Hey, you know, you're, you're probably a step slower because of these surgeries and college coaches aren't going to want to recruit you because of your, of your surgeries. And I quickly realized that I needed to change that narrative. I needed to be the person that was like, no, wait a minute. I'm still playing at an elite level and coaches in college are still contacting me about playing for their school. So I was the one who realized I need to change that narrative. No, that's a negative thought. I want to change it to something positive. If you think about it, our mind can hold one thought at a time. Why would you want to make that a negative one? So true. So you get through, you get to your senior year, and you have a heavy choice to make on where you're going to go to college. And you chose the Citadel of all places in South Carolina. What made you choose that? I originally chose, going back to Ohio, the University of Toledo. Okay. That was my, that was my initial uh, thought. And I had verbally committed to them. We, we had the signing date for the, the NCAA letter, letters of intent had not occurred yet. And so I verbally, I went on a visit, I verbally committed. And then I get a call from one of the assistant coaches who's like, "Mm, not sure we've got a scholarship for you. So you give me the scholarship or you offer me the scholarship and then you kind of pull it back. It's like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know in a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks later comes. And I was told, yeah, we've got a scholarship for you. But my dad, very smart man, very insightful person, before I committed to them, he said, let's let's sit back here. Why do you think they offered you the scholarship and then pulled it away? I mean, I was a kid. I didn't know. He's like, they found somebody else that they wanted more than you. So how do you feel about playing for someone who offers you something and then takes it away and then offers it again? And I thought about it for a while and I was like, I don't feel good about that. I don't feel that that person has my best interest in mind. They have their best interest. And I get it. College sports 
is a job and, and, and it's a job for the athletes. It's certainly a job for the coaches. You don't produce, you don't stay around and you're looking for a new job. So I, you know, when I got rid of, of University of Toledo, I was like, well, where do I go now? And the Citadel had an unbelievably great coach by the name of Les Robinson. Les Robinson coached, he was the only, he's the only person to ever be the coach of an NCAA Division I, three different NCAA Division I basketball programs and the athletic director at three NCAA Division I schools. Oh, wow. And so I got to, to play for him and he actually took over, uh, this was after I graduated, for Jim Valvano at North Carolina State. When oh. Valvano got kind of in a little bit of hot water and was relieved, my coach, Les Robinson, uh, took that job. The other school he was the AD and coach at was East Tennessee State. So the Citadel, East Tennessee State, and North Carolina State, he was both the AD and the head basketball coach. That's crazy. Like, that's that's a, that's a whole job in itself. It is, totally. Okay, so you get past that, you go to college, you have a good time. Um, prospects of making it to the NBA or different things like that. It's so much that goes on there. When did you come to terms with that you were going into the working world? So I, I, I had I had a third surgery in high school. It, it was a very minor thing. It was the removal of a bone spur. So it really wasn't much. But I had a fourth surgery right before my senior year. And I, I knew I wasn't going to make it past that. So it was, now what do you do? And I wanted to be in law enforcement. My grandfather, my dad's father, was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during... Uh, the height of prohibition where alcohol was outlawed in the United States during the Great Depression in the 1930s. And certainly during the time when the gangs, you know, Al Capone and yes. those guys were shooting up the city. And I didn't really know him. He died when I was seven years old. But my, but his wife, my grandmother, lived well until, until I was in college. So I got to hear a lot of the stories sort of secondhand. And he was actually, my grandfather was shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It wasn't a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle, taking a homicide suspect back to the lockup. But my grandmother, my dad remembered the stories my grandmother always told about the knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, please grab your son. Your husband's been shot and come with us. So when I expressed interest in going in law enforcement, my dad was like, no, 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 no. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out. You're going to get a job. You're going to have 2.4 kids, get a house in the suburbs and live happily ever after. And I sort of joke about that, but that's really what my dad had laid out for me. But that's the life my dad wanted me to live. That wasn't the life I felt I was put on this earth to live. And so I had a choice when I graduated from college. My, my dad was sick, as I mentioned. My grandmother was sick. I had a choice. Do I do what my dad wants and go into business because he's dying and, and go along his wishes? Or do I say, you know what, dad, the heck with you, sorry. I'm going to go over here and find my own path. And I chose to, to honor him and not go into law enforcement until much later in life. I was 37 years old when I became a rookie police officer. Oh, wow. So you had a, had a career before you even did that. And then once you became a police officer, um, how long did you do that? Uh, about 10 years. I started off as a reserve police officer when we lived in Santa Barbara. And then when we moved to Ohio, to Cincinnati, after our daughter was born, uh, I told my wife, you know, and that, that's another great story. I, you know, here, my wife had married me when I was a 
suit and tie, you know, eight to five Monday through Friday hospital administrator. And now I'm like, hey, hon, I'd like to do this, you know, job where nobody likes you and people shoot at you and things like that. And my wife was incredibly supportive. And so I was able to do that when we moved to Cincinnati and did that for about nine years before my wife lost her job. And she was the primary breadwinner, couldn't find another job in Cincinnati, found one in Houston. So I got out of law enforcement and went with my wife down to Texas. Okay. And I'm glad to hear about that support right there because you don't understand, but what you just did there, you put a gem in this episode. Um, a lot of people don't get to hear about the structure of the husband and wife and not discrediting binaries and non-binaries, but just the structure of two people together and supporting each other up through the highs and the lows. So I gladly appreciate you throwing that in there for us because you don't hear that very much anymore. And that's encouraging for other people to do in life also. So Let's jump into something else. You have a website. You have a blog. Motivational check. What will someone find when they go over to motivational check? A, a lot of things. They'll, they'll certainly find the podcast that I have been on. But more importantly, every day I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought usually goes a question. So you know, if it's about leadership, it, you know, might be a question about how do you, you know, what's your leadership style? If it's about success, it's, you know, how do you measure success and get there? So I don't want it to just be a thought or a quote for the day. I want there to be some substance underneath, something that's going to make you think. And then on Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message, which a lot of times is a story or a video uh, that, that goes a little bit deeper than just the thoughts for the day. So, I mean, it's it's not real complicated. It's it's not real sexy, but it, it's something to get people to think and and to hopefully use to improve their lives. And I know people's time is short. You know, they they're busy. You know, with family, with work, with with you know extracurricular activities. So everything on there is short. You go in, you get a quick hit of inspiration, motivation. Then you can get on with your day. Okay. Now, in, in building this up and doing all this, uh, like I said, going back into the other part of your story. Um, so you went down to Houston. Okay. And I just wanted to throw that in there so the audience would know a little bit right then and there. Um, so going down to Houston, um, what, what transpired in Houston? Did some things happen there that, motiv- that started molding you into what you are today? Or what happened down there? Absolutely. So, you know, here I am. I, I've been in law enforcement for 10 years and now I've got to find another job. And so I, I had training and experience from, from my SWAT days my, uh, yeah, with the police department. And our daughter had been in, in you know, w- was getting to the point where she was in school. So it was like, okay, can I use my experience in law enforcement to help schools be safer? So I started my own school security consulting business. And then over the years, as our daughter got got better, my, my daughter got, uh, or our daughter got my height. So she's six foot two. So I wanted to coach her in, in high school. So it was great being your own boss because I could kind of wind down the, the consulting work during basketball season and then ramp it back up in the off season and, and still coach basketball. So that that's the, the what I did in terms of a job. But I also was diagnosed in 2012 with a a very rare form of cancer, a form of melanoma, when I had a callus break open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe. And and it was at a time when I was coaching. So initially, 
I didn't think much of it, but after it didn't heal, I went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine, and he took an x-ray and he's like, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that would give anybody any concern. And But fortunately, he sent it off to pathology. And then two weeks later, he called me. And as I said, he was a friend. And the more difficulty he was having telling me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming until finally he just kind of laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a rare form of melanoma, which most people think of melanoma as a skin disease. You're out in the sun too much. He said, you have a rare form of melanoma that appears on the palms of your hands or the bottom of your feet. And even went on to tell me there's an even rarer form of melanoma that appears in our mucous membrane. So in your nose or your mouth or someplace like that. So here I am, you know, 2012, faced with this major life-changing illness. Okay. Now with this life-changing illness, um, you have to go get treatment for cancer, correct? I did. I had, uh, I, I, I was, because it was so rare, it was recommended that I go to MD Anderson, which is in Houston, probably certainly one of the best cancer hospitals in the United States, maybe one of the best cancer hospitals in the world. And because, like I said, my cancer was so rare, it was like, you need to go there and be treated. And I did. And I, I had the bottom of my foot uh, removed where the tumor was. And I had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed as well. And when I healed, I was put on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon. And basically what interferon did for me was it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine Ooh. having the flu every week for five years. Ooh. And that for me, and that, you know what, your, your comment right there, that's exactly what I said to my oncologist. I'm like, you want me to do what? I'm like, that just didn't, in my mind, I'm like, no, that's stupid. Why would anybody do that? And again, for me, wasn't a cure. It was just as my oncologist used to say, we're trying to kick the can down the road. We're trying to buy you more time. So there's more therapies for melanoma. But I, I said the same thing you did. I was like, you want me to have the flu every week for five? That, that's just stupid. That's just crazy. But I did. And, and basically what she said was, I want you to do it for as long as you can. I want you to do it for as long as your body can hold out. My body held out for four years and seven months until I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees because of the toxicity from the drug. 108 degrees usually isn't compatible with being alive. Uh, right. Unfortunately. I was at a level one trauma center and they were able to stabilize me and, and send me to the ICU. But after that, I could not take that drug any longer. That was 2017. The disease came back later that year, 2018. I had my left foot amputated because of uh, the cancer. Uh, 2019, it started to work its way up my leg. So in the shin, I had two more surgeries. And then last year, 2020, I had an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle that grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated. And I also found out I have tumors in my lungs and I'm being treated for those tumors right now. All right, we'll, we'll definitely pray that 
all that work works out there. Now, how did you stay positive through all this? Because here's the thing that I always like to get out there. Like people always understand the aspect of I get cancer, figure out how to, uh, you know, something happens, either it's a good ending or bad ending. No one ever talks about the well ending, the ending that, that you have right now. You're in high spirits. You're out here living your best life. So how did you stay positive through all this? And what type of mental maintenance did you have to do to stay positive? I think part of it is, you know, there's kind of a term that I like that's you need to embrace the suck. Did, did this suck? It absolutely did. It was it, it was terrible. But but I guess the way I look at it, we're all going to experience pain in our lives, in our lives. Pain is inevitable. And, and, and it doesn't have to be cancer pain like mine. It could be you, depending on your on it, you, you flunk a test at school, or you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or you don't get the promotion at work that you think you deserve. We're all going to experience pain. Pain is inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, suffering is optional. Suffering is what you do with that pain. Do you take it and use it to make you a stronger, a tougher, and more determined individual? Or do you wallow in it and want, want people to feel sorry for you and feel sorry for yourselves? I, I guess maybe I should back up. I want your audience to understand there is no S on my chest. I do not wear a cape and fly around with magic powers. I am a human being. I have bad days. I cry. I get down. I feel sorry for myself. I just don't let myself stay in that state. I use, I use that pain to make me a stronger, a tougher, and more determined individual. Okay. And I like to hear that. Now, sustainable excellence. How did this come about? Like, how, what inspired you to write this? So sustainable excellence, the, the 10 principles to leading your uncommon and extraordinary life is, is really a book born out of two conversations I had. One was with a former player of mine uh, who moved to Colorado, where my wife and I live now. And I, we had had dinner with her and her fiance. And I remember saying to her one day, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she kind of looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Your life should be about finding the reason God puts you on the face of this earth and then living that reason. So that was one conversation. The second one was with a young man from college who reached out to me and wanted to know what I thought were the most important things he should learn to not only be successful in his job or in business, but also in life. And I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. They are. They're incredibly important. But I wanted to see if I could give him something different, something maybe that would go a little bit deeper, deeper, something into his soul. And so I thought about it for a while and I took some notes and things like that. And then I had these 10 ideas, these 10 thoughts, these 10 principles, and I sent them to him. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, you know, I got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody's life who emulates that principle. So literally I had my leg amputated in April of 2020 and I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs in June of 2020. So during that three month or so period where I was healing, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories underneath each of these principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be. All right. And inside writing this through uh, 
the trials and tribulations that you had to go through doing all this. Um, did you ever have an issue like a writer's block or anything happen in between that time? So this is certainly the first time I had ever had a book that got to the point where it, it was it was going to be published. So I really only when I was writing, I had two rules and, and two rules only. I think the more rules you have, it, it, they kind of get convoluted and, you know, you can't keep them straight. And, you know, you're always trying. To, and, and here's what they were. They were very simple. Number one, every day, Monday through Saturday, I will write at least one page regardless. And number two, I will not edit anything until I have the first draft of the manuscript. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you, JR. There were days I sat down at the computer and I wrote garbage. It was, it was terrible. And I, I'm, I'm writing and I'm thinking, there's no way this is ever going to make it into a book. But then there were also days when I wrote something that was good and I, I could feel that it was good. And it's like, okay, this is what I've got. So, you know, I waited until the very end until I had this collection of garbage and really good stuff. And then I compiled it. It's like, no, that's out. That's out. That, no, that's in. That's in. That's, that's out. That's in. That's in. And that's how the book came about. So, it, you know, there was no real, I never really had writer's block. But like I said, there were days that I'm like, man, this is terrible. It's never going to see the light. Of <laughs> now, you get this book into a, a position where you have to uh, allow people to read it, to critique it and stuff like that. So what was it like getting the first critique of your book? So you're, you're right. I, you know, you, you write something and then, you know, you kind of step back and you're like, is this any good? Is, I mean, you know, or I mean, I think it's good, but, you know, I'm the I'm a little too close to it. I need a different perspective. So my wife and I have a couple who are very good friends of ours, but they're much younger. He is a former Navy SEAL. She is a former uh, uh, city prosecutor. Well, she's a lawyer. So we're like, you know what? I, I went to them and I'm like, look, would you read this and would you be brutally honest with me. If you think this is garbage, I want you to tell me it's garbage. If you think there's something here, please tell me that as well. And so they, they did. They agreed to read it. And, and they both came back to me independently and said, no, you, you need to try to get this published. But I was still a little uneasy. So I went through the, the publishing process and I knew I had something when I had an 87-year-old man who bought the book out of the blue. I don't know who this guy is, 87 years old, reads it and then contacts me. And he said, you know, if I would have had these 10 principles when I was younger, I would have had a much better life. That's when, you, that's when I knew for sure that I had something that, that was worth people's time to read. Okay. Okay. I like that because, you know, someone actually, they were inspired and they got that inspiration and reached back out to you. So that kind of sums it up there for the book. Now, um, where is this book available at? Pretty much you can get Sustainable Excellence anywhere you can get a book online. You can get it from Amazon. You can get it from BarnesandNoble.com, Apple iBooks, anywhere online you can get a book. And, it, and it's in uh, ebook form, it's in paperback, and it's in hardcover. Okay. Now, where can everybody find you across social media? So, um, the easiest way to find me is at motivationalcheck.com. I have a LinkedIn account. I have a, a Facebook account, an Instagram account, a Twitter. I, I have all of those. But you can get to all of those 
through motivationalcheck.com. Okay. Now, inside these shows, I pay homage to uh, a news magazine. 2020. John Stossel's the comedy. We've already done the comedy earlier. Diane Sawyer does this thing in the middle of the of these shows where she's really in depth. She was probably the better journalist out of her and Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters just had the fame and was had the notoriety. But as a young child in the late 80s, early 90s, mainly in the mid 90s, um, 1040 would roll around. And uh, Barbara Walters would come on there. She would do a very uh, deep interview. And it always left you uh, in suspense sometimes. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it went over to 1102 and, you know, cut into the news. But the one thing she did was with her questioning, she got to be more personable, um, made the person more personable, the whoever she was interviewing. And um, I think we've already done a pretty good job of getting very personable with you. But uh, we'll go a little bit deeper so. We'll skip John Stossel, but let me give you your first Diane Sawyer question. Okay. And, all right. Um, fighting cancer is a battle. And in fighting cancer, like you said, you're a warrior. You're strong. Um, what was the one time that you got down and you really had to pull yourself up out of the pits? So right before I had my uh, foot amputated, it was suggested that I try a drug combination that would do nothing to the cancer, but would hopefully rev up my body's immune system to identify the cancer and attack it on its own. And the combination of those two drugs gave me all kinds of, of problems. I, I ended up developing pseudo-gout. Uh, I was incredibly exhausted all the time. And then one night in the middle of the night, I woke up thinking I was having a heart attack. And you know, I woke my wife up and she rushes me to the ER. I, I did not have a heart attack. I, I ended up having a blood clot in my lung and fluid around the sack of my heart that was preventing my heart from efficiently pumping. But I remember laying on the gurney in, in the emergency room, literally with tears coming down my cheeks and looking at my wife and begging her to let me die. I just wanted away from my body that just seemed to continually be attacking me. And it was at that moment that I remembered two things. One was uh, a study that was done in the 1950s at Johns Hopkins by a professor who took rats and he put rats in water over their head and he wanted to see how long rats could tread water before they, they would start to sink and drown. And the average rat was about 15 minutes. And so right before the rats were ready to drown, he grabbed them, he pulled them out, he dried them off, he let them rest for a while, and then he put them back in that same tank of water. And the second time, the rats treaded water for 60 hours. Now think about that. The first time, 15 minutes. The second time, 60 hours, which told, told me two things. One, the power of hope in our lives. And two, how much more our bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. And that kind of dovetails into the second thing that, I, that popped into my head was I remember reading an article that was written by the owner of a professional sports team who had a Navy SEAL, probably one of the toughest group of men in the world, come and live with him and his family for a month 
to teach them to do more physically than their minds ever thought they could do. And one of the things he taught them was the 40% rule. And what the 40% rule says is, if you're done, if you're at the end of your rope, you don't think you can, you know, as a seal, run another mile or swim another lap or anything like that, you're only at 40% of your maximum. And you still have another 60% left to give to yourself. And it was at, at that moment, thinking about all that stuff, that I actually just kind of went inward and was like, you know what? I have so much more left to give to myself and I'm not going to quit. So all I did was tie a rope at the end of that rope and hang on until I found a better day. And I didn't die. And I managed, I mean, that was back in 2017. Okay. And then from that point on, so you, you went to a, a higher, you evolved into a higher being in that sense. And that's amazing, especially about the part about the rat. It is. Now, you get past this, you triumph, you're, you're plateauing at this moment, like you get to a steady point in life. Um, and then the books come along with the website and all this stuff that's immersed around you. How do you handle that form of success? Because we all have different levels of success, but you're in another realm that's different from what you've done before, because you've had accolades and different things. But being a writer, when you heard from the 87-year-old man, that's a different type of inspiration than coaching a basketball team or having uh doing something great with Wendy's or something like that so how does that feel and how does that make you feel as a person to know that you know basketball you probably took a lot of people a lot of places beyond just sports just with their lifestyle and different things like that but someone that didn't know you from a can of paint took the time to just reach out to you like that how does that make you feel as a person so I I think the important thing for me now is that you know, when I wrote the book, Sustainable Excellence is about success. It's, it's, it's about what you do to be successful. It's what I do to be successful. And I am very proud of the book. But I think I want my second book to be about another word that begins with S that's more important. And here's that word, significance. Success is what we do to be whatever significance is what we do for other people. Now, don't get me wrong. I think you can be successful and significant at the same time. But I think the thing for me is not, it. you know, fame, fortune, money, power, influence. That's all a myth. There, there's a great story. I, I don't believe it's a true story, but there's a great story about Alexander the Great, who probably is, is the greatest conqueror of all time. He conquered the entire known world when, when, he, was, when he was alive. And, and the story goes like this. At, at the end of Alexander's life, he's dying and he, he brings his counselors, his advisors together. And he says, I want you to carry out my final three wishes. And here's what they are. Number one, I want only my doctors to carry my casket to the grave. Number two, I want the road to the cemetery to be strewn with gold and silver and precious stones. And number three, I want my hands to be left outside of my coffin. And one of his advisors is like, Alec, I mean, you're like Alexander the Great. You can have any wishes you want. Why these three wishes? And here's what he said. He said, number one, I want my doctors to carry my coffin to the grave because I want people to realize that no doctor actually cures anybody. They, all they do is help the body 
to cure itself. And I want people to realize that the decisions they make make it easier or harder for those doctors to, to help the body cure itself. That's number one. Number two, I want the gold, my, the road to the cemetery to be strewn with gold and silver and precious stones because I spent my entire life conquering and accumulating wealth and riches, none of which are going to go with me to the next life. I want people to realize that it's sure folly to spend your whole life trying to do that as opposed to helping other people and putting as much love and goodness into the world. And then finally, number three, I want people to realize that I came into this world empty handed and I'm pretty much leaving it the same way. And I like that story because I think it really, it, it's, it, it shows what's important in life. And importance is not based on, you know, I guess, let me back up. We're not all born with the same gifts and talents, but we all have the ability to become the best person that we're capable of becoming. And that has nothing to do with where you live, what kind of job you have, how much money you make. None of that matters because at the end of your life, and I always tell young people this especially, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do and it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then, it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Wow. <laughs> that is so true there. Well, Terry Tucker, I want to thank you for coming on West Virginia and Commonplace. I want to thank you for blessing us with, with these gems. Um, something I do for everybody, um, I give them a quick testimonial about themselves. And I've just met you a little bit over an hour ago. And I want to say this to you, Terry. I want to thank you for being a person that has had quite a bit of adversity and to triumph over that and to share it with the world. Because a lot of people will have this champion thought that, hey, I had a little adversity. I'll tell a little bit about my, my misfortune or the difficulties that happened to me. And then I'll give a little self-help and then I'll move along in life. But no, you're not doing that. You're actually out here. You're trying to motivate people to be more than their better self to be their best and that's something hard to do in this world because people will just say oh they'll chop it up and be like oh well I'll just do whatever I want to do I'll listen to a little bit I'll take pieces here but your whole book it seems like uh that like that 87 year old man you know his life would have been changed had your book came out a little bit earlier so maybe the story that you're telling is uh, a testament of someone else also in your family meaning your grandfather you know someone you said that you didn't know very well but you heard stories about so maybe some part of him manifested in you inside this writing and that's something that uh just getting um from talking to you you can kind of tell and obviously having a very very strong family um it sounds like your mother your father grandmother everybody was beside you and has always stayed beside you left and right of you and held you and made sure that you had some time to reflect and then after you re reflected on these things, you refracted that uh, that that uh, light onto other people. And that's something that a lot of people do not do. A lot of people get the light, absorb all that stuff, and then they don't pass it along to people. So that's something I want to thank you for, too. And I wish that you would keep doing that. And the thing is, motivational check. Um, to be able to be positive through all the negativity that's in the world and to have a great mental conscious of who you are. It is so hard to do that in this day and age because some people medicate themselves or are medicated to a point that 
it's a disillusion and with you not the case so i want to thank you so much for that and one thing that i want you to carry from this episode and carry on uh, with you throughout the rest of your days is this one thing you are more than a helper in the world you're a giver being a giver gives you a certain type of philanthropy that you'll never understand because it's someone looking at you from the outside and that philanthropy is this your heart giving your heart giving the the tactics that you've learned along the way the knowledge the know-how all that stuff that's a philanthropy that that only people from the outside can see and you'll you'll one day later on down the road you'll understand what i mean by that philanthropy and i thank you for doing that for people because not like i said and i keep reiterating not a lot of people do that but people always give and give and give but they don't look at it from a point of philanthropy philanthropy goes deeper it's a it's a to me it's a more prevalent way of giving and you're not looking for anything in return and most people give and don't look for things in return but the way that you're handling life and the way that you're uh taking the sucky parts and the good parts and living them and not being um bashful about it that's something that's raw that uncanniness that you have there keep doing that please for the world and that's my testimony for you well thank you jr i i, I appreciate it I, one thing i I did mention it. I'll, I'll mention this real quick. The, there's three things that what I call the three F's and, and you mentioned them: faith, family and friends. Those three things have gotten me through this nine year battle with cancer. OK, and that's that's where it, that's what it should do. And that's where um, those three things should lead you down a, a good path. Um, what I would like you to do real quick is please give a shout out to everyone or just if you want to put it in a bubble everyone that's helped you along the way or if you just have a group that you just want to or if you want to say everyone please shout those people out in this episode because the thing is that we're not always around to give everybody their flowers and it's people we have so many words that we want to say to people that are not here anymore and things like that and we know that they're always with us like i said left and right of us and sometimes in front of us to stop us from things but when we do have a moment to do it i always think that we should just give you know, uh, thanks back to these people because they molded and shaped the clay. That's Terry Tucker today. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and I could, I'd go on for hours if I could do it w- with all that people. So I, I guess I would just say all the people who gave me love and help and support now, as I'm approaching probably the end of my life, I'd like to put as much goodness, positivity, love and motivation back into the world as I possibly can. Okay. And I like that. Now, one last thing. Um, you're going down a highway and we can pick any route. We can go route 40, 17, anywhere, route 50, uh, 275, anywhere. There's a billboard. It says Terry Tucker. What else is on that advertisement? I, I, I guess two words. One is love and the other is resilience. And why are those your choices? Uh, because I, I've realized, um, I, I, I recently had, an, I had, an, I had a, kind of this crystallized, man, quick story. I had, a, I had a nurse who took care of me when I first started in the unit that I'm in. She was already a nurse, but she was training. Several months ago, she was taking care of me by herself. And she said, you know, I'm really uncomfortable, but I want to tell you a story. And I was like, well, just tell me. She said, well, when I first met you, she said, I was going to get out of nursing. She said, I'd had a good friend of mine die and I was in a very dark place. I talked to my mom and dad. I was going to get out of nursing and go to work for Amazon. And then I met you and I heard your story and I see 
how much you suffer every day while you're here. And I knew I was in the right place. How many people out there that you and I, you know, how many people know JR from afar and want to be like JR? How many people know Terry Tucker from afar and want to be like Terry Tucker? Those people are out there. There's, there's a great, great quote from John Wooden, who coached basketball at UCLA, and I'll leave it at this. And this is what he said. Careful person I want to be. A little person follows me. I dare not go astray for fear they may go the same way. Think about that quote. Think about the people who you have no idea who they are, who want to emulate you and be like you and be the person that they would want to emulate. Okay, and I can see that on your billboard because I know about John Wooden and I know about the many championships and the guidance that he put out there at UCLA. So once again, Terry Tucker, I want to thank you for coming on West Virginia and Commonplace. Uh, this has been a special episode for me because you gave a whole, so many gems and so much knowledge and it's the presence that you have. And that means a lot to me. So once again, I want to thank you for coming on the show and definitely in the near future when the second book is, uh, is it midway through or is it, it, it's in the, I'm gathering information stage. stage. Okay. So once this book gets to a little bit more fruition, I'd definitely love to have you back on so we can talk about it. That'd be great, JR. Thank right. you very much for having me on. All right. And this is West Virginia Uncommonplace and we're signing off.